program or we don't use the program. We find out whether it's actually a good program. But in each one, I could go on and on and on. In so many different areas of life, um, if you want to find out that something is real, you really have to test it. There's really no other way you can find out if it's true, if it's cancerous, if it works, or if it's authentic, if you don't somehow test it. I don't think our faith is any different, our faith in Jesus Christ. One of the things that um, we are all about here at Urban Grace is we're all about Jesus. So honestly, if you come in and this is new for you, church is new for you, um, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus. We believe that the good news about Jesus is called the gospel. That's what the Bible says, and that this gospel is good news for us. This is Jesus who is, is God. He's come to this earth as a missionary. He's come to reach us with both his plan of salvation and his sacrifice for us uh, on the cross. And one of the things that, that when you become a Christian, it's, it's kind of this simple. If you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is in Scripture, the Bible says you are a Christian. And one of the ways that you know you're a Christian is if your faith in him is tested. Now, let me go back to my original question. Who of you, when it comes to faith, loves being tested by God? Anyone? Anyone wake up this morning and go, Oh, I just hope there's a lot of tests that come and just, just about drive every physical limitation out of me. So that by the end of the day, I'm just barely hanging by a thread to my faith in Jesus. Is there anyone out there? No, we don't enjoy this at all, I don't think. I've never met someone who says, boy, I'd really like to meet with you in your office, Trev. I'd love for you to pray a bunch of tests into my life so that I can find out if my faith is real. I've never, ever had that happen to me before. But the truth is, in my life, in your life, in our life, and in the life of so many people in Scripture and throughout church history, the only way Jesus helps us to see for ourselves what our faith is like is if he tests us. He puts us through trials. We're going we're gonna to look at a book called First Peter. Um, that's the name of the book. It's also the name of the guy who wrote it. Well, not First Peter. That's not his first name. Peter is his first name. Um, first is, is because he wrote two letters. Okay? And they follow each other. And actually, they're both very similar. But they're written to Christians who Peter doesn't really know that well. And he's trying to encourage them and remind them, look, just so that you know, if you want to know that your faith is real, don't be surprised when Jesus sends a bunch of tests into your life to find out whether your faith is real. Don't be surprised by this. In fact, embrace it. Embrace it. I mean, it sounds crazy. Embrace trials. But he says, embrace it on the simple fact that at one point you will begin to see the authenticity of your actual faith. And so I think it's a good book for us. I think it's a really good book for us. Let's, let's dive right in. Um, in chapter 1, we're only going to go through two verses, and there's, there's a lot in here. But what sometimes happens when we look at a book like this is we just look at kind of the message of the book, and we don't look at the person who wrote it. Because I, for one, am not that interested in talking to someone who hasn't experienced this. Have you ever found that to be true? Like when you go online 
and, and you try and find information about someone, do you trust someone who's never actually done it? Ever? Do you trust someone who, like, I, I have friends like this. I've known people like this. I don't know if I would, maybe they're not friends. I'm not sure. People that I know, okay? We're eating food, and the food is in front of them, and they go, oh, I don't like this. And I go, oh, really? Did you, did you try it? No, I've never tasted it. Have you, <laughs> has that ever happened to you? Maybe it's only me. And I'm like, how in the world can you know that you don't like it unless you've tasted it? I want to know, like, if, if the lobster is good, I want to know if someone else has tasted it and experienced that same goodness. And I think one of the things we sometimes forget when we look in Scripture is this isn't written by someone in an isolated cave away from everyone who's never been tested. In fact, I would say if there was anyone in the history of Christianity who could write a book to people about suffering, about trials, it would be Peter. Peter's the perfect candidate for this. I'm amazed when you, when you know what Peter would know. Peter was considered um, the first among equals among all of the apostles. We'll get into what an apostle is. We're starting to talk about who Peter is here. And and so we'll explain that later. But Peter is what we would say first among the equals among the apostles. The apostles were the disciples. I know this is where it kind of gets confusing. They were called disciples. Then Jesus changed their name and gave it kind of this authoritative meaning of apostle. But, But Peter was like at the front of the pack. Okay? It's one of the first people Jesus calls to follow him. He called 12 people. He called 12 men. He literally would walk up to them. Hey, I know, you, I know you've got a fishing business, but can you just drop it and follow me around and I'll tell you things. That's essentially what Jesus did. And 12 guys said yes. And Peter was one of these guys. Peter's kind of a loudmouth guy. I relate to him well because he seems to always have his foot in his mouth. He's always saying things and he's like, just kidding. I didn't mean that. It was the other way around. But Peter's one of these guys that just never seemed to get it right. And it seemed like Jesus was almost happy to use him as the example for the rest of the disciples. And so some of you are like, well, I'm I'm really, I I, I don't like tests because I fail a lot of tests. Great. Peter's going to be one of your friends here. Because Peter failed a number of tests. It's the first thing I noticed about Peter is he gets it wrong all the time. In Matthew 16, 22 and 23, uh, you can even turn there if you wanted to, if you can find it. If you can't, I'm just going to read it for you. 16, 22 and 23, uh, what's happening is, is uh, Peter has just confessed, uh, and I'll get into that later, so I, I won't even talk about that, but he, he gets it wrong. In verse 22 and 23, Peter has just kind of carefully articulated who Jesus is, and then something comes up where Jesus says, okay, now that you know who I am, now would be a good time to tell you that in, in a couple of months, in a couple of days, in a couple of weeks, I am going to the cross, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to almost die, I'm going to be sentenced to death, then I'm going to hang on that cross, then I'm going to rise again. Okay? What's Peter's defensive first response? He gets it wrong immediately. He's like, okay, Jesus, okay, okay, dude, come here, come here, come here. Pulls Jesus aside and said, Jesus, seriously, totally a fatalistic message. I want you to calm down. Uh, You know, Jesus, I got this. I will have your back. And you know what Jesus says to Peter? He's like, 
bro, if, if, if you don't understand this, then you're working for Satan. Like right in front of everyone. He's like, get behind me, Satan. If you don't let me go to the cross, you'll have no part of me. Like that's embarrassing, right? Peter's supposed to try and defend Jesus. He gets it totally wrong. He doesn't even do it discreetly. He does it kind of in front of everyone where they can see. He gets it completely wrong. He puts his foot in his mouth a number of times. He fails a a number of tests. Peter is a guy who failed a lot of tests. But Peter is also a guy who gets it right. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 30, as Jesus is gathering this, this small group of 12 and he calls his disciples, Mark chapter 8, there are over time three that begin to stick out from the rest. And this is the same situation in a, in a different place in Scripture in Mark chapter 8. And, and, and Jesus is, is asking them, he's asking all these 12 disciples, he's like, so? So guys, what are the Twitter what, you know, what are the Twitter feeds saying? You know, who's trending? What are, what's trending about me? And a number of them pipe up. Well, you know, some say you're like Elijah, maybe the greatest prophet, does all these awesome things, calls down fire from heaven, things burn up. I mean, pretty impressive guy in the Old Testament. Some, some say um, John the Baptist John the Baptist, again, great preacher, bad wardrobe, great preacher, right? He's got terrible choice in clothing and diet, but he's an awesome preacher, right? He can bring it. So he's like, well, some say you're kind of like John the Baptist. You can really bring the word. You can really preach. You can really convict people. Some say you're Elijah. You can do a lot of great signs. He's like, okay, okay, that's good. That's good to know what's trending. But what, what do you say? What do you think? Who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. It's it's something that that Peter gets right. He's been tested. He's watched Jesus carefully. He knows. He's been there with Jesus. He's watched him heal people. He's watched Jesus walk on water. Like Paul Tripp. Uh, preached a message that we showed on our screen about two months ago or a month and a half ago that, that said, we don't really get this, do we? Like, no one goes, wow. You know, he watched that. And then he did it, like, partially, and then he failed because he looked down and, and, and he kind of started sinking. And he watched all this stuff. He's the guy who watches Jesus wash his feet again he, this is the place where he kind of gets it wrong he's like well jesus no i don't want you washing my feet like seriously i have you seen my feet like they're disgusting anybody's feet for the most part would be disgusting in that in that day and age and jesus is like no no this is going to be the method peter and so then peter's like oh okay then you wash all you want he's a guy who who gets it right He's seen all of these things. He's watched Jesus perform miracles. He's watched Jesus be compassionate. Thirdly, because of that, Peter starts the church. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 40. Um, 
And this is amazing when you think about it. You, you get someone who's, who's done it all wrong. Peter has essentially done it all wrong. Not only has he kind of mixed up, he can't, he can't get the feet washing thing right. He can't understand how Jesus has to go to the cross. And then at the very end of his life, he can't stay awake in the garden while Jesus prays in his last moments. And then when Jesus says, I really need you right now, he says, oh, I'll be there. I'll be there right to the end. And he says, Jesus is like, no, seriously, Peter, actually what's going to happen is there's going to be three opportunities and you're going to fail on each one of them. And as he fails on each one of them, Jesus is like, and you'll, your, your, trig, your memory is going to be triggered because after the third time that you fail me, you'll hear a rooster crow. And so sure enough, Peter hears a rooster crow after he denies Jesus, while Jesus is literally only a few steps away in the last seconds of his life, fighting for his physical life. But Jesus says, Peter, you're going to be the one that starts the church. And so in Acts chapter 2, we see that Peter, the first among equals, literally preaches the sermon that begins the church. Jesus handed him the reins to start the church. So he's been there right from the beginning. He's watched this thing grow up. He's been there with Jesus. He's watched his suffering. He fled from Jesus' suffering. He failed miserably. Jesus, or Peter actually says that he, he's so unworthy of Jesus' honor that he doesn't even want to be martyred in the same way as Jesus. He prefers Jesus was hung right side up on the cross. He says, I'm not even worthy of being hung upright on the cross like Jesus. Hang me upside down. This is a man who's been deeply tested by his Savior. And so I think he's the perfect person to talk to even strangers about suffering. Peter's an apostle. Peter's an apostle. The word apostle has a general meaning of messenger. Not every messenger is an apostle, but every apostle is a messenger. Okay, does that make sense? Not every messenger is an apostle, but every apostle is a messenger. An apostle was, uh, the, the phrase that's often used is sent one. Sent one. They don't stay kind of in a church. They, don't, they weren't supposed to just kind of huddle. And in fact, they were huddling, and so, so Jesus brought persecution on the church so they would get going with the church, so that it would spread. And that was called the, the scattering or uh, 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 the... The dispersal of the church, it's called. Diaspora. The dispersal. The going out. And apostles were those who were left in charge, and Peter is leading the apostolic team. Capital A apostolic team. This is an amazing thing. So you've got the guy who gets it all wrong to literally, he's the guest speaker on opening night for the church. Someone who's been there right through everything. Apostle, uh, no other phrase, in the, uh, no other place in the New Testament is the, the word uh, of Jesus Christ added to a, a title. There's no pastors of Jesus Christ. There's no administrators of Jesus Christ. There's no, like, floor cleaners of Jesus Christ. There's only apostles of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, he has commissioned them. They come with his authority. He doesn't even try to defend it. Some of the other writers of the Bible, they'll try and defend their authority. Like, for instance, this guy named Paul. He wrote a bunch of letters. He wrote more than Peter. He was a late bloomer. He came in after Peter. He constantly defended his apostleship. He was like, I was called by God to be an apostle. You better believe it. This is important that you get it. Peter's like, he just even, it's like he wore the name apostle on the back of his jacket and that's it. And he just walked around apostle. Because he just, he just had confidence in his God. And that's what an apostle is. Someone who's, who's given that kind of authority to, to start the church. Now, what I want to already start to begin to ask you is, we've talked a lot about Peter, we've talked a lot about testing, and I want you to start to begin to personalize this. Because some of you, as I was telling these stories already, are going, yeah, if Jesus had any clue what testing I was going through, or, or, or yeah, if Jesus had any clue what testing I was going through, Trevor would be quiet. I want you to think about some of the things that you consider these great tests, these great oppressions. Jesus is putting you in awkward spots at work where you actually have to talk about your faith in Jesus. He's removing things from you that you had considered very comfortable. You used to have money, now you're scraping. You used to have a job, now you can't find one. You used to have a marriage, now you don't have one. You used to have friends, now you come to Urban Grace. What's Jesus been putting you through? Are you beginning to see yourself kind of even through the lens of Peter? Like if if Jesus can do this with Peter, he can do it with you. He can do it with you. And just like Jesus does it with Peter, he's doing it so that you can see the quality of your faith. Now, some of us would say, like, you know, all this testing, it's so that Jesus can see the quality of my faith, the authenticity of my faith, the realness of my faith. And I would say, no, I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus knows the quality of your faith. He's not doing it for him. He's actually doing it for you. Some of us kind of think it's the other way around, like, oh, isn't this good that I did this for Jesus so that he can see how real I am with him? And Jesus is like, no, no, I'm not doing it for me. I knew the quality of your faith before I tested you. I'm testing you as a gift to you so that you can see the quality of your own faith. The second part of, our, uh, of the text talks about these people that Peter is talking to. So we got a little bit about Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, sent one of Jesus Christ, a tested man. We want to talk about who's he talking to. Well, these are people that are being tested, people who are being tested. Um, that should be the next slide. I don't know if that's, that's, that's number two. It's a strange word to use, elect exiles. I'm not sure if you use that to describe your city group or your small group or your church lately, but it's not a very common phrase to use of Christians, right? I mean, it's not very good conversation. If you walked up to someone who's never been to church before and you said, hey, I'm an elect exile, they'd be like, I kind of expected that from, from how weird that sounds. Because um, you will stay exiled um, and you won't be elect if you keep using that phrase. But this is an important phrase. This is an important phrase to anyone 
who has any clue about what God has been doing throughout history. You see, elect just means chosen. Exile means you don't totally belong there. I know that sounds strange. Isn't that a strange combo? But it's actually kind of a sermon in itself. Elect, exiles, chosen, but I don't belong here. Now, what happens if you look through a biblical history, what you will see is that God constantly chose his people. He chose them. They did not choose him. Now, this is already awkward for some of you. So wait a second. They mean, mean these people had no choice in the matter? That's not what I said. I said that the Bible describes God's people constantly as being chosen. And it does this so that it can help the people of God understand their security. If you know that you have to choose all the time, there's a chance that you could be lost in the mix, right? But if you know that you are chosen, that changes your whole perspective. Right? Like my children, they don't wonder if daddy doesn't come home at night. They don't, they don't wonder like, oh, is my dad not going to be here? Like, I hope I choose my dad tonight. No, they know that I chose these children. They are my chosen children. I'm coming home. I may be away for a while. I may not see them for a while. I may even discipline them for a while. I may tell them to get lost for a while. But they're still my chosen children. Those are my kids. That secures them, telling them, I love you, I chose you, I want you, secures them. If I left it up to my children, who knows what would happen? Now, this isn't to bother anyone and say, there is no choice in the matter. There is no conscious choice. I don't even want to get into that kind of argument this morning. But Peter uses this to encourage these believers. Now, what's, what's interesting is they are Christians, but they're a long way from Jerusalem. Peter kind of stayed in and around Jerusalem, making sure that the church there was okay. And occasionally he traveled up to places like Galatia. Occasionally he moved. Uh, most scholars say he probably never met the people that he was writing to. But he kind of knows their situation. And it's really cool that Peter describes them as the, the elect exiles. The elect exiles. Because that's how it honestly feels at times, doesn't it? It feels like you're, you're an exile from this world. Have you ever noticed that? How sometimes choosing Jesus, following Jesus, makes you feel really lonely from where you are in the world. Has anyone ever experienced that? Anyone? Even if you're not a Christian, have you ever experienced that? Where we just feel like my choice of life. They often say that a leader's, a leader's life can be very lonely. It's a, it's, a, it's a choice you have to make. You have to be willing as a leader when you make that choice to be a leader that it can be lonely at times. And that's how a lot of it, uh, that's how it is a lot of times for Christians. But this idea of elect exiles is just this combination of these two things. That, that yes, you are chosen and you are secure, but honestly, part of the reason why you feel so alone, why you feel frustrated is because you're actually exiled. That word exile should have almost made some of the Christians or some of the people jump. Because again, if you look at the history of God's people throughout the Bible, right from the very beginning, you can even go all the way back to Adam and Eve. And what you will see is when Adam and Eve sinned, God made them exiles from their home. He kicked them out of the garden. They got to stay on earth, but he kicked them out of the garden. They were exiles from the garden. 
And then every time that they would go through this cycle of kind of this grace and redemption sort of thing, he would, he would put them in, into exile. And that's where you get this pattern throughout biblical history of exile and restoration. I took a class on this when I was in Bible college. That's what the class was called, exile and restoration. Because that was kind of the rhythm of God's people. God would be gracious to them and give them grace. They would say, we want to obey you. They would obey for two seconds, and then they would sin. God would say, pay attention to your sin. They wouldn't. God would say, I really want you to pay attention to your sin. They wouldn't. God said, I really, really want you to pay attention to your sin. They wouldn't. He said, I will help you pay attention to your sin. They went into exile. They said, hey, God, what are you doing? He said, I told you. Then he restored them. Repeat cycle. That is very, very consistent with all of Scripture. And so when you tell a Christian who's chosen an exile, that's kind of a strange combination, don't you think? But it helps put in perspective this great tension that we feel. And some of us, when we face our tests, this is exactly what will happen. We will need to hear that we are elect exiles, that we are chosen, but we're never really going to fully be comfortable until we see Jesus face to face in heaven. Does that make sense? That there's part of us that just needs security here on earth, but there's part of us that just we're just longing for something better. If you've ever felt that way, you are right where you should be. Because that is the posture of an elect exile. And that's what Peter says. You are elect exiles. You're connected to those people who God's been working in for all his life. All your life. All of history. This is so helpful for us as a church when we think about this, this, this idea of, of being on mission. We say this word being on mission, and I don't want to confuse anyone. I want to be really clear. We haven't even said this for a while. What I mean when I say we are on mission for Jesus is that we are missionaries for Jesus. That's when we started this church, the idea was we were going to gather together a band of people who were going to train together to be missionaries. City groups are groups of people who are working out the gospel and training themselves and each other how to be missionaries. Why do I say missionaries? Because we don't belong here. That's why. This world as Christians is not our home. Good word. But we need to hear it over and over again because some of us are pursuing comfort and we're like, why when I pursue comfort do I feel so far from God? Because this world is not your home. And your pursuit of comfort, your pursuit of everything else will make you distant from God because he said you are a landed immigrant. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you actually sign the document, so to speak, with Jesus that says, I am one of your landed immigrants. It's not my place anymore. So your house is actually not your house. Your wallet's not your wallet. Your kids are not your kids. They're someone else's. They're Jesus's. See how this can be a tough word for us. It's a difficult word. And that's why we have to go back to this word. Yes, but you're chosen. Yeah, but you're chosen. That means you can't get lost in the mix. 
Some of us are so afraid when we use the word chosen that this is like describing God like the arm-twisting God of, of the punishing people into his kingdom. That's what I hear all the time. It's often used the word predestination. Some people will be like, well, I don't believe in predestination. I have a little problem with that because the Bible says we're predestined. So that's kind of my argument to that. I don't mind that you argue, but you don't have to argue with me. Just go to Scripture. You will actually find the word predestination. But it's not put there to to give you this impression that this is what God does with salvation. He doesn't grab your arm and go, would you get into my kingdom? He doesn't do that. He gives you preachers that yell and scream at you and beckon you to come and live on mission. He gives you books and people. Have you noticed how gentle God is? That he's predestined you and yet, have you felt like he twisted your arm around you? Have you felt like he slowly beckoned you in love? In fact, that's the phrase when most people get this wrong when talking about predestination. But in Ephesians it says, in love he predestined. Not in hate. Not in arrogance. Not to frustrate you. To secure you. To secure you. I hope you hear that clearly. I hope you don't hear that, 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 that God is mean. Some of you aren't Christians yet. Do you know what that is? That's an act of God's love. He's letting you come at the pace that you can handle. What kind of amazing God would do that? I would not do that if I was God. I'd be like, get those people in here before they change their minds. That's what I would do. That's why, obviously, I'm not God. Well, that's one of the reasons. (laughs) Itty bitty reason. That's why we've got to hear this. When, When Peter preaches to the elect exiles, we've got to remember that we are also elect exiles. That we are chosen and yet this is not our home. And this should change everything for us as we think about our mission. Some of us think we can add Christianity onto every other thing that we believe. And Jesus says at some point you can't do that anymore. You can maybe try that as you start, but at some point you are going to have to understand that it's all or nothing with me. Again, this is a hard word in our world. We live in a world where everything is kind of like one or the other. Or whatever works. We pull bits and pieces from here and there. And I say, at some point, Jesus leaves us no choice in that. And he says, it's one way or the other, friends. It's either all true or it's not true. Let me tell you this. I don't think there's a place in your life that you'll find more testing than when you become to act like the missionary that that Jesus calls you to be. I noticed when we planted the church, here's what happened to me. Well, let me use an illustration first. You know how you find out who, anyone love finding out they're out of shape? Is that enjoyable for you? No, it's not enjoyable. How do you find out you're out of shape? Like, I know I'm out of shape. How do I find out I'm out of shape? Well, I tried to climb a really tall mountain on Tuesday. And I found out in about 30 seconds how out of shape I was. Okay, it's not enjoyable. Unfortunately, I was on the mountain for about 12 hours. So that was like 11 hours and, you know, 59 minutes and 30 seconds that I I literally realized I was out of shape. But there's nothing that will 
that will kind of show us how out of shape we are with our faith, how real our faith is until we begin to have to talk about it with other people. Have you noticed that? As you begin to talk about your faith and you're like, what do you believe about, you know, the Trinity? And you're like, I don't know. It's three, one thing, sort of. Like there's nothing that will just hammer that out of you like talking about it. You know, that's why Pete made a good reference last week. If you want to learn how to teach the gospel, go upstairs or, or two blocks away or a block away and teach kids the gospel. You will find out how little you know very quickly. Because they will ask you very real questions and they will expect answers. And they won't ask them in kind ways. That's what mission does. It tests you. And so I think we're at a great point in our church continually where we, we need to be on mission because I want to find out whether, whether I really believe this stuff. You know, I always used to ask this, you know, if a gun was pointed to my head, what would I say? Would I deny Jesus or, you know, and some of us would be like, well, you'd have to have that gun pointed at your head. Friends, collectively, our country is pointing the gun at our head and saying, what do you guys believe anyways? What are you Christians really about? We are not living, by the way, in a Christian society. I know maybe that's news for some of you, but for those of us who have been on mission, we've discovered this quite quickly. We do not live in a culture that just readily accepts everything that Christians believe or even understands them. We use terms, even this morning, I'm very conscious of the terms that I'm using, making sure that every term that I use can possibly be understood by someone who just doesn't know about what Christians believe. It didn't used to be that way, but it is that way. And there's nothing that will test our faith like literally being on mission, being a missionary. And so this testing, thirdly, how do we know? How does it work? Well, Peter basically says in chapter 2 how we become a Christian. I don't know if you saw that. Listen to this again. He said, you are elect exiles. This is how the gospel works. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, excuse me, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That's, that's how people become Christians. Okay? You want to know? If you forget how people become Christians, go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, and that will explain it. Hopefully you can remember some of this stuff. But again, what does he say, first of all, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? The foreknowledge. So be for knowledge. That's what that means. It's not a lot of different ways to translate this. It means foreknowledge, previous knowledge. According to the previous knowledge of God the Father, someone becomes a Christian. Now again, some of you will really resent that. I say, take it up with God. Take it up with God. You see, this is, this is, I, I find that so securing to know that there's nothing that happens in my life that God was like, I didn't know he was going to do that. You know, some people say, well, what, this whole foreknowledge thing, why do we have to talk about this foreknowledge thing? What about my free choice? It doesn't take away my kind of my freedom. And I would say, what freedom? Does it not give you ultimate freedom to know that there's nothing you can do to escape the love of Jesus Christ? Does that not sound freeing to you? Are you not hearing that correctly? 
that there is nothing you can do that could stop you from the, it's not like, you know, sometimes we have this impression that God is like, he's watching us and, and he's forgetful. And it's, it's like, you know, he looks over and he goes, oh no, what? I'm never going to get them out of that. What, what, what about these? Well, don't talk to that person. They'll do. Oh no, this is hopeless. You know, why don't you just choose? No, God says, everything that I put in your life, every test, every person, Every single detail I put in your life, I knew it was going to happen. This should secure us. Now, I don't know every detail. I don't know it in my own life. I don't know it in my kid's life. I don't know it in my church life. I don't know it at all. But knowing that there's nothing that can happen in my church... That God's not surprised when someone in my church sins really badly and they need forgiveness. That God's like, oh, I told you guys to do this. Now there's nothing I can do. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, so that's previous. That's God's working previously. That's like throughout history when, when he used this idea of exiles, he was thinking of you. That's crazy. Who would do that but a gracious God? But he also doesn't just say, well, I planned it. And now once I save you, now once you're in that plan, once I, once I save you from your sins through, through faith, which is actually a gift I also give, now you're on your own. Sometimes as Christians or sometimes people think that's how it works for Christians. You know, like God will get you in the door, but once you get in the door, you're on your own. And some of us don't necessarily think that, but we live like this. We live as though it's all up to us. Why can't you sleep at night? Well, this is this and this is, you're not in control. You should sleep. And so God says, I will give you present power, real time power. It's called my Holy Spirit. So you begin to see how God works here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, that's the power of the Spirit, that's day to day. Some of us need to simply learn this prayer. Holy Spirit, help me to blank. Fill in the blank. Help me to hear you. Give me wisdom. Help me find a job. Change that person's heart. We need to depend on the now time power of the Holy Spirit instead of the previous, well, God's just plan. See, God's not, he's not short-sighted. He's got it. But Wayne Grudem says this, I I think it's so helpful. The unseen, unheard activity of God's Holy Spirit surround them almost like a spiritual atmosphere in which they live and breathe, turning every circumstance, every sorrow, every hardship into a tool for his patient sanctifying work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So when you feel a test, that's the Holy Spirit right now helping you. The Holy Spirit is at work in this room right now in some of your hearts. Some of you are confessing and repenting. Some of you are wanting desperately to change. Some of you are wanting forgiveness. Some of you know your own heart needs to be changed. Who do you think is doing that? That's the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit at work Right now, sometimes people really push back on me and say, well, I, you know, I don't feel like God's at work in my life. All I'm discovering is just how sinful I am. 
And I'm like, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He draws sin out of you so that you can worship Jesus Christ fully and obediently and freely. So there's power in the present. Thirdly, we're secured in our future. It says, for the sprinkling of Christ's blood. Now, now some commentators were really confusing on this. And so um, they were all kind of on the same page when it came to the sprinkling of blood, but some were not on the same page on what kind of sprinkling of blood it was. But one of the commentators, I thought, had a, had a great view of this. And he said, I, I really think this is referring to the time, that, that really obscure time in Leviticus. You know, most of you have read Leviticus, right? This morning. Most of you have it on your coffee cup, right, at work. No, Leviticus is not that kind of book. In this obscure part in Leviticus, it's about having a skin disease called leprosy. We don't really have this skin disease around very commonly anymore um, because it's, it's quite curable, but it's very contagious. And it, it, you just get really bad sores on your skin. And it's it, at the time that Leviticus was written, there was really no cure for it. But if you were cured, a.k.a. if God decided to heal you, what happened is that you were required by law in Leviticus 14 to go to the priest and the priest would then kill a bird. So if any of you have like Tweety birds, right, like kill a bird, you can you can sacrifice a bird for this if you find someone with leprosy. I'm kidding. But they would kill a bird and then they would take that blood and they would sprinkle it on them and declare them that they could once again be part of the community. They were secured. Someone who had leprosy, literally. I know it sounds strange, but they'd have blood spots on them. That was a badge of honor for them. I am once again included in the community. I don't have to be excluded from the community because that's what happened when you had leprosy. You were required by the people of God to expel those who had leprosy. If you had leprosy, you had to be, live outside the camp. And anytime someone came near, you literally were required by God's law to scream out, unclean, unclean. I mean, if there's anything that would have been socially awkward, that would have been it, don't you think? Like, hey, what are you guys doing later? Unclean, unclean. Like, oh, sorry, dude. See you never. Like, it, it totally isolated people from the community of God. And this is what Peter says. He wants people to have this image in his mind. He says, this is what Jesus has in your future. He, because of his death and resurrection, because of, of the blood that he shed on that Roman cross, in a way he takes that blood and as a way of securing you, he sprinkles it on you, securing you forever. And so when Satan comes in, he says, you're going to fail this test. What can you say? You can say, I've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be with Jesus. And when all these tests come in and people tell you, man, you're a complete failure. And they probably will say that at some point. You say, yeah, I may be a failure in this world, but you know what? My eternity is secured. Do you know why? Because I'm sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ and I'm part of his kingdom, and I'm one of his kids, and you can't take that away from me. Only he can, but he won't. You see how this, this description even in verses 1 and 2 secures us and reminds us of what we have in Jesus. 
that no matter what test we're facing, no matter what's coming our way, we never have to worry because we know that our God, because of even the way he saved us, we have security through all of our testing. According to the plan of God the Father, in the sanctification, present sanctification of the Spirit, by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, we are secure. I want to read to you something that I found in, in Luke as a, as a way of concluding. Because Jesus said this, Now, knowing all this stuff, knowing how secure you are, now, I know now you guys and girls can go out this week and face the testing that's coming your way, if you believe this. I know you can do it, because that's what matters. Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples, tells this great parable. It's actually the way he kicks off uh, the the story of the parables. It's found in Luke chapter 8. And it's the story of the, the sower. And he tells the story of the sower, and so I'll read it to you. And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But then because he knew who Peter was and knew how messed up Peter would get this, Peter would be like, well, that's those talking about other people. So he interpreted and he said, And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes in and takes away the word from their hearts. That's happening even this morning. So that they may not believe and be saved. There's some that the devil is taking away every word that I'm saying so that you can't be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. And listen carefully to the great word. In time of testing, fall away. In time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. As we close out, we always do this thing in our service, in our big gathering here called the Lord's Table. You can call it communion, call it the Eucharist. really is not a big difference to me what you call it. But what is a big difference is what you think of it. And what I want you to think of it, if you're new here, is a family meal. This family meal is a meal that if you don't believe those things about Jesus, we would say don't partake in the family meal. Just like I would say if you're not part of the family, don't come when we're having a private family meal. But if you want to be part of the family, this is, it's as simple as this. Believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. 
Now that seems like there's a lot of loopholes for some of you. I'm glad I'm not in charge because I would, I would find the loopholes too. But Jesus said it's that simple. If you do believe, would you come and be reminded that your faith, your salvation, friends, your eternal salvation is secured because of these symbols. We have grape juice, we have wine, we have bread. These are symbols that Jesus said. This symbolizes the shed blood on the cross and my broken body. This is a symbol of what Jesus has done. And this meal is a way of us proclaiming together, my faith is secure, my salvation is secure. There's no amount of testing that can take me away. I'm one of those people in the last, the last example who's going to produce fruit as a result of my security in Jesus Christ. And so I invite you now just to come and as Jesus leads you, as we sing, as you talk through this, uh, would you come and partake of the family meal with us?